This is one of my favorite songs. It's hard. It's hard not to have favorite songs. Uh, all of the psalms are good, but this psalm it seems like it just has so much in it. And uh, I've spoke several times from this psalm. I have a sermon on sermon audio entitled "When God Laughs," and it's one of the most downloaded psalm sermons that I have. On sermon audio, I don't remember exactly how many times it's been downloaded, but it's one of the top three. Uh, I guess the title causes people to be curious. Well, it is curiosity, and it's kind of odd to talk about God as laughing, uh, but that's what we refer to as being an anthropomorphic term, which is God expressing Himself in humanistic language, so we can understand He is not fearful trembling, or nor is he in any way stressed uh, at what man does. <clears throat> so Psalm chapter 2, and I will begin, and I don't like to take exception with the King James, I like the translation, I think it's the best English translation, but I have a dear friend, and I'm qualifying this to explain to you that I don't claim to be language language scholar, but when I was at Bob Jones, one thing I learned there I heard this from some place. One of the professors said something like this. He said, a smart man doesn't have to know everything. All he has to know is where to find the answers. Well, that's pretty good. So I'm not smart, but I do a lot of times know where to find the answers. And so I have a dear friend out in Oklahoma who has a doctor's degree in Hebrew and in Greek and taught in a Baptist seminary, both languages. And so I consulted with him about this. Verse 1, why do the heathen rage? Now, my curiosity was raised by the statement of our Lord on the cross as we have it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I never could understand why Christ, who was indeed party to the eternal covenant, and who knew very well his purpose in coming to earth, and who knew what was appointed unto him about his death, I never could understand that question, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, I mean, there may be some satisfactory explanation that someone else may have about it, but not to me. I, I just could not. And I began to look at this word here as it's used many times. And I could take the time tonight to go through Psalms and other places and support what I'm about to say. But this word can also, can also be translated how or how great. And I think that's how I will consider it. How great has do the heathen rage? It's not a question of why do they rage, but it is the magnitude of how they rage. It's, it is, you know, it is startling to see the heathen rage as they do. You would think as many times and as many occasions as God has demonstrated his power in judgment and his anger against sin that somewhere people would come to some conclusion and say, hey, we can't win this ball game, and uh, we need to lay down our swords. But they persevere and prevail, or try to prevail in trying to thwart God. How great do the heathen rage? Why do they rage? Well, we know why they rage. They rage because of their depraved nature. And the depraved nature of all people is that they're at, at enmity against God, 
And we are also, by nature, with the children of wrath, even as others. And we were born with an animosity toward God. Uh, the statement is made that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That comes from the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And that is true. Uh, we don't love truth. We don't love righteousness. Our carnal nature is, according to what Paul says, we are an enmity with God. And we are by nature not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can we be. Now, uh, we need to emphasize and understand that because that's our depraved nature and that's the nature you got, we all got right now and that's the nature we'll live with until we die. We have to deal with that depraved nature that is in rebellion against God. Always, always, only by the power of the Holy Spirit are we able to subdue and control. But we're not in any way under the power of that depraved nature because we have been given liberty and obtained liberty in Christ Jesus who has given to us the new heart and a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So we are not, we are not victims of our depraved nature. Excuse, the devil made me do it, won't hold water. The devil may have enticed you to do it, uh, but certainly he didn't make us to do it. The reason why we did do it, as Paul says in Romans, the sixth chapter, we yield ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness. And there is no power on earth, no spiritual power, no power at all that have dominion over a child of God when he is submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, why do the heathen rage? How greatly do they rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. All of the schemes, all the plotting that has been inspired by Satan, by hell, all of their scheme to store, destroy Christianity, to step out the lineage of Christ, to prevent the Messiah from ever being born. And, and that's a fascinating history and thought to trail all the way beginning back with Adam and Eve and how it is that Cain slew Abel. And no doubt he was inspired of Satan to do that because he thought that by this means he has prevented the seed from coming forth that would crush his head. And from that time in that garden, enmity that God spoke about between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, that enmity has been manifested in God's people uh, towards evil and the Satan towards God's people. It has been a long, ongoing struggle. But all of it is in vain. They have not, Satan has not at all, in one part, in one degree, not one iota, has he ever been successful in preventing God from doing what God purposed to do. As I have thought it, so shall it come to pass. Hallelujah. What a God that we have with omnipotent power. And so that everything that transpires and unfolds is by the will of God. Now, when I say by the will of God, I mean that He has caused it or permitted it to happen. He suffers evil, but in suffering evil, He does that to accomplish His will. The death of Christ is a testimony to that. Him being delivered by the determined counsel of the of God, ye have taken it with wicked hands and crucified the Lord of glory. But in that awful, terrible act as it was, as evil as it was, Satan thought that he had successfully put to death 
the Son of God, and thereby had thwarted the whole purpose of redemption. But simply all that he had did by his evil desires was to accomplish the salvation of our, of our salvation, accomplish our salvation through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so, in vain do the wicked rage, and the kings of the earth set themselves, the political powers, with great power. You think of Pharaoh and his great power, who said that he would not let the Egyptians go. But the end, bottom line, was uh, he is telling them to get out of this country. Uh, he told Moses and Aaron, don't come back again. If you do, if I see your face again, I'll kill you. Well, <clears throat> they did never come back again, and they never saw him again, except he was floating maybe face down in, in the Red Sea. Uh, in vain do the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord's anointing. And that's the history of political history. That's the, that's the course of political history. They set themselves against God's people. And God ultimately brings about the destruction of his enemies. Uh, and that's what makes us fearful even for our own country. As our country moves against his elect people, that God will ultimately bring judgment against the political powers that are inspiring, conspiring against God's people. The rulers set themselves, uh, the kings set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Well, again, the death of Christ. You see that the Sanhedrin taking counsel against the, the Christ, and they purpose to put him to death, or they conspire, or they, they hire or pay Judas to betray him. And yet all the while, their whole scheme, their whole plot was simply God's plan unfolding. What a marvelous, wise God we had. And what comfort it ought to bring to us when we read, of course, in the 13th chapter of Romans and so forth, that the powers would be ordained of God. They are the instrument of God to accomplish His will and purpose. We may not agree with it and don't like some of the things that they're doing. And there's a long list of things that I could tell you that I don't like right now about our present government. But nonetheless, they are the instrument of God for whatever purpose He has designed, either for our judgment or uh, whatever, to bring about the good for his elect people. And that's what God is doing. Blessed, rest assured, he sends the rain upon the just and the unjust alike. But I'll tell you, my opinion is if it wasn't for the just, the, rain, the unjust would not be getting any rain. It is that the unjust, the ungodly, are blessed because of God's outpouring of his blessing upon his people. And that's the history of America. Well, they set themselves, they take counsel against the Lord... And against his anointed, anointed ones, really, that's against his people. And they say, let's break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. All restraints, every godly principle that we would like to see set forth in, in a godly society, it is the purpose and plan of the ungodly to break them. Gambling, abortion, prostitution, drugs, all of these things that we would like to have stamped out from our society, knowing very well that even the removing of those things would not prevent people from sinning, but yet nonetheless the license and the opportunity to engage themselves in those things are a means to encourage them to participate. And you cannot legislate righteousness, but at the same time we should not license ungodliness. And yet they want to break the bands of sunder that restrain God's people, and that restrain the evil countries, 
And so let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cards from us. Now, it, it just seems like the, the whole uh, cloud of, of, of uh, storms is about to break out upon God's people because here this conspiracy is going on. The kings of the earth and the rulers are taking counsel together. Lord, what are we going to do? The next verse. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> Don't you know what they're saying, God? Don't you see what they're doing? Don't you know what's happening to your people? He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Psalms uh, 37 says again that the Lord shall laugh in Psalms 37 and verse 13. Psalms 37. In verse 12 we read this and this is in the connection here. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnashes upon him with his teeth. <laughs> I mean that's that's bad. Stephen, they gnashed upon him with their teeth and they stoned him and they thought that they had stamped out Christianity. And they'd gotten rid of the witness and the testimony. But what did they do? Oh, they were just the instrument of, first of all, of ushering him into heaven's portals. And it may have aroused somewhat the guilty conscience feeling in the heart of Saul. I don't know. But I do know that Saul was there encouraging them. And he, they laid their coats at his feet. And uh, he thought that most certainly that he was going to pick up the... the uh, battle cry against God's people and that was why he was going up to Damascus he was making havoc as the Bible says of the churches of the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad that's interesting you read that account Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 the Lord said to them you should be witness unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and on the uttermost parts of the earth well it seems like that the church at Jerusalem decided we're having such much success here and we like it here and we're getting good response. We're just going to stay here. It seems like it. I'm just reading between lines. And God turned to loose a tiger by the name of Saul. And he began to persecute the church at Jerusalem. And they were scattered. Now, it's very interesting when you read how they were scattered in the ninth chapter of Acts. They were scattered and they went everywhere preaching the word and they went into Judea and into Samaria just as God had told them to do, that's what they did do. That's how God caused them to be scattered. He suffered, allowed Satan, Saul, to persecute the saints, to drive them out of Jerusalem, and as they went, they went everywhere preaching the word. Well, that's the reason, that's the history of God's people. When they've been driven from place to place, they've been driven out, and they went preaching God's word, and rather than destroying them, and rather than wiping them off the face of the earth, it's just like trying to take a pillow full of of, of uh, chicken feathers or duck feathers and you rip it open and you let it go and the feathers just go everywhere. Well, that's what happened. God's people just go out under persecution and they flee and they preach in the Word of God. And he that sits in heaven laughs because they're simply accomplishing his purpose and he is not frustrated one bit. The Lord shall have them, the ungodly, the wicked, the kings. He'll have them in derision. Then, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And the word vex is a very significant descriptive word. 
It means to grind down, <clears throat> to irritate you, to vex you. God allows the wicked to have free course for a while till they accomplish his will, and then he vexes them. He irritates them to see that rather than accomplishing the purpose that they designed to do, all that they did was to accomplish what they didn't want to accomplish. Look at Joseph's brethren. They meant to evil. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they they planned this thing out and, and they thought they had covered up their tracks, so to speak, and the crime that they committed. And it went for years and no one said anything about Joseph, where he was, no doubt. And Jacob thought he was dead. And then it got revealed to them who Joseph was. Can you imagine the torment of their conscience to know that this man that was now second in ruler in this great kingdom of Egypt was the very same person that they tried to kill and planned to kill. Vexed them. Vexed them. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, when does he do this particularly? And this is a great verse from verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. This is the resurrection and exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the throne in heavens where he sits and rules and reigns supremely as king of kings. There are three offices that our Lord holds. He is prophet, priest, and king. And those three offices are in a chronological order somewhat. He first came as a prophet. I don't mean to say that there's three different comings of the Lord, but he came in his first part of his ministry was primarily as that of a prophet. And then he became the priest who offered up himself as the lamb of God for his people. And now he is exalted as the king of kings and lord of lords. And Paul describes him there in the second chapter of Philippians. And he talks about how that Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And wherefore God, not man, but God, hath highly exalted him and given him names above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God ultimately makes Christ to be so exalted that the wicked are made to bow at His feet and acknowledge His sovereignty. We sing in Psalms 110, and that verse also is a description for the exaltation of Christ. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now that is ultimately what is going to happen and that's what God is now doing in time. All of God's elect people are born the enemies by nature to Christ. But what does regeneration do? In regeneration, He brings us by creating a new heart in us. He brings us into submission to the King. And He, we who were His enemies become His friends. And we bow at His feet and we love Him and adore Him. And so, that's what God is now doing in time. At the end of time, ultimately, what's going to happen? The King is going to be made manifested and the kingdom of God will be visibly, ultimately manifested to the whole world, to their vexation and ruin. What God has been pleased to make known to His elect, the non-elect are going to be made to behold, but not to enjoy. And so, this takes place at His, at his resurrection. Now, verse 7, I will declare, or I will de- confirm the decree. 
which is this. The Lord said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Now, the word begotten, we think of it in the sense most of the time as a father begotten a child. But it has other meanings to it also. It has other meanings which means that they have come forth, brought forth. A lot of people take this verse to describe uh, the birth of Christ, but it's not with reference to the birth of Christ. Uh, this verse is quoted more than any other Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's quoted in the 13th chapter, for instance, of Acts, uh, Acts uh, chapter uh, 13 and verse 33. And the context in which it is quoted here is very important. Verse 29. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. Now, in my Bible, I draw a line under that. And I've written out the side of it, the last things, the last thing that sinful men or that mortal man ever done to Christ. They take his body and lay it in the sepulcher. Now, what if the history or the record of Christ stopped there? <laughs> we would yet be in our sins. We would have no salvation, as Paul talks about in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And so the next verse is very important, but God. How oftentimes you read in the Scriptures, but God, but God. And this is what's important. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee, Jerusalem, who are his witnesses on his people. And we declare unto you glad tidings. Now that's the interesting phrase right there. The word gospel means glad tidings. Good news. And you could very well put that word right here. We declare unto you the gospel. Because this is critical heart to the gospel. Not only the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And what was accomplished in his death. And so Paul in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians says, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The purpose of Christ's death is critical to understand why He died. And that's the reason why those who talk about Him dying for everybody and He stands for everybody, they misapply and they misunderstand the vital critical issue of why Christ died. We declare unto you the glad tidings how that the promise which was made to the Father, God had fulfilled the same unto us, their children. How? In that he, as it's written in the second Psalms, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He's speaking about the resurrection of Christ. It's Hebrews chapter 1. This verse is also quoted, and I won't take the time to look at some other times, but it is the resurrection of Christ wherein that God hath exalted him and brought him forth from the grave and has set him at his own right hand, and in so doing, he declared unto all the universe and the angels, this is my victorious son. Paul uses the phrase in Romans chapter 1 about the resurrection of Christ. And he says, which God promised, well, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared, and the word declared means to be demonstrated, proven, and confirmed, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It is 
not just power in the sense of dynamite power, but it is authority also. All authority and power had been given unto Christ in Matthew 28. He said in heaven and in earth. He rules supremely as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now then in verse 8, here's the, the Father speaking to the Son. Psalms 2. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. God had a peculiar people in the Old Testament, the Israelite nation. And they were a type, physical type, of God's spiritual Israel. And But spiritual Israel is not just of Jews only. It is of Gentiles too. And so ask of me and I will give thee the heathens. Not just those who are physical loins out of Abraham, but those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And whereby that God has given to all of his elect from the ends of the earth, out of every nation, his elect people have been given to the Son and they will all be brought to the Son because of his finished work on the cross of Calvary. Ask of me. Now, the verse in Psalms 110, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What is going on in this day and age in which you and I are blessed to live in? It is the outworking of the ministration of that decree whereby the Holy Spirit of God is going to the ends of the earth, to the hearts of God's elect people, and they are being brought into the knowledge of Christ as Redeemer and Savior. And He is inheriting, He is gaining possession of His inheritance. I'll give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The Father, earthly Father, wills to His Son inheritance. And the problem, though, is that in that inheritance, in land, there are enemies living there. And they will not vacate the land. They claim it. So there must be a battle fought. War must be done. And so the Son goes forth in His mighty power, Christ in His mighty power, and He gains the victory over Satan and over the law of God. When I say victory, I'm talking about delivering from the law of justice. And he lays and redeems his people from the bondage of sin that they were in from the ends of the earth. And he takes possession of his inheritance, both of his elect and ultimately, I believe, the new heaven and new earth that will be given to the Son as a redeemed possession. I take that, my understanding of Romans chapter 8, some scriptures there. We'll not take time to look at that tonight. But look at verse 9. Thou shall break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now that's an interesting statement. Particularly as it refers to Psalms as it used in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, I read something like this. Revelation 2. It's not Revelation 2. It is Revelation 27, 2, 27, I'm sorry. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works, I'm reading verse 26, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potters shall they be broken to sivers, even as I have received of my Father. Now, in Psalms 2, it is a prophecy given to the Son. 
But in Revelation 2, it is a prophecy given to the Lord's churches. Faithful church saints are joined with Christ in his victory over all of his adversaries. And the ultimate end is that we are given power over the nations, or the word nations could be said as the heathens, the Gentiles, the ungodly, power, and he, that refers back to those that overcometh, verse 26, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, executing his authority, Christ's authority over the world, and we rule and reign with him. It is a ruling and reigning present day we have with Christ. We don't realize it. We don't understand it. But I'll tell you, in Christ we are victorious. We have powers. We have great power. There is no power that God's people are subject to in Christ. We may be the victims of the enemy or the victims of cruel men, be put to death. But what have they done to us? Did they defeat us, destroy us? No. They simply ushered us into the portals of our eternal glory with Christ. And what is the history of the persecuted saints? It is rather than being being stamped out, they've been scattered, and they've been the overcomers of all their enemies. And for what does Paul say in Romans the 8th chapter? We're counted as sheep for the slaughter, and we are all these things are against us, but he says in all these things we are what? We are what? More than conquerors to him that loves us. Well, back to Psalms 2. <clears throat> now then, verse 10, we get an application. Here is the admonishment to us. All the way through chapter 2, the ninth verses, we have been reading truth, doctrine. Now we come to the application of it. And that's the record way Paul did many times in the New Testament, you know, he would teach us some things, then he would say, we need now to make some application of it. All right, here's the application. Number one, verse 10, be wise. <laughs> be wise. I love the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is about two kinds of people, fools and wise people. And the fool will not listen to counsel, will not learn anything. The wise person will listen and learn some things. That's the sum total of the book of Proverbs. Now here, the writer is saying by the Holy Spirit, be wise. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Well, if that's for the kings, it certainly is for all of us. And be mindful that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, the rivers of water, he turneth it well as if he will. And so those who have been plotting against Satan, against Christ, uh, here is the admonition of, be wise, look what's happened. Look at Nebuchadnezzar. Look how it was that God turned his heart, though he was the very instrument whereby that bring about the subjection of Israel in captivity, though he would have the Hebrew men put into fiery furnace, all those things, and yet what happens? God makes him to be, I believe, a regenerated person, and he bows and acknowledges the sovereignty of Almighty God who doth according to his will in the armies of heaven among the heavens and earth, and none can stay his hand and say, What dost thou? He learns something. So if they can be instructed and they learn, maybe we ought to listen. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. And what should we do? If we learned anything, serve the Lord with fear, that means with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Now that seems like two conflicting, contradictory words. To rejoice with trembling. 
Well, <clears throat> if you've ever been so excited that you just could not contain yourself, you felt that way, you just, it just like you were about to burst out of your skin. When my lovely bride started her walk down the aisle, I felt that way. Who is this lovely, beautiful creature that's coming down the aisle that I am about to have the joy of marrying? I had a hard time standing still. I wanted to run up the aisle meter, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it was just joy unspeakable. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look what God's done. Mighty, fearful thing. Verse 12. Here's where we need to all come to. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Lest He be angry with you and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. <laughs> not a lot, but a little. Now to kiss the Son, this is not like Judas who kissed Him on the cheek. That's a blasphemous kiss, a kiss of betrayal. This kiss is the kiss to the sovereign as a subject. And where you kiss it, you kiss at the feet. You come to his throne. Actually, you come to his footstool. And, if, and I may take up a study tomorrow on that very subject, the footstool of the Lord. But it's an interesting study. Kiss the sun. You don't touch the throne. The footstool is where the king in his glorious, magnificent position. Solomon had a great throne and he had a footstool. Kings won't allow their feet to touch the earth. The idea of a red carpet, that's where all that comes from. And so a subject who is brought in to plead for mercy or for whatever his request may be, he comes in to the king and he bows at his footstool and he kisses his feet in submission. So here's the position that a repentant heart comes to, literally, not literally, but figuratively. He comes to the majesty, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is his Redeemer and Savior, and to whom he has violated all of his life by every breath that he breathed from the time of our birth, and who are worthy of his wrath and his judgment. Now we come in a repentant heart by the Holy Spirit of God. And we come to Him and we say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And we kiss His feet in total submission and subjection to His sovereign majesty and His rule over our hearts. We all, as God's people, need to go back to our time and time again and remind ourselves what our position is. We are but pardoned sinners, if you will, Allow me to use that expression. We have been delivered from a justice of eternal death. And we were brought by sovereign mercy and grace to the footstool. And we were enabled and blessed to kiss the king's feet. And he was pleased to say unto us, You're forgiven. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Now here's the ultimate final blessing. Just like the Beatitudes. Blessed all they that put their trust in Him. They're blessed to put their trust in Him. They're all blessed. Everyone that's been ever brought to kiss the Son, they're blessed to put their trust in Him. What do you have trust in? What's your hope? Nothing but Christ. What way? He is my King. He is my Lord. He's my Savior. 
What a great position we have. What a great privilege we have. Kiss the Son. And blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. May we pray. Our Father, we thank You for Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. We thank You for Your great salvation that we have in Him. We're thankful that we have a resurrected Savior who is now sitting as King of kings and Lord of lords and who rules supremely over the universe and who does rule over the hearts of His people in great majesty. May Your Spirit bring us all to that place where we daily kiss the Son, lest He be angry with us. Forgive us of our own waywardness and our departure and rebellion in our hearts. And may we be brought daily in submission to the King. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.